Well, we are continuing in Matthew 24 and 25, the last great discourse that Jesus gives to his disciples before his crucifixion and resurrection, and finally ascension. And you remember, at the end, I mean, obviously to fast forward a little bit, but at the end of the book of Matthew, it ends with the commission, right? Be Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, even, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. And so those, really those five teaching sections in Matthew, they are a sort of um, uh, the, the summary version of Jesus' teaching to his disciples, teaching that we are to observe, teaching that we are to hold on to. And so we sometimes, when we think about stuff related to the end times, which is what Matthew 24 and 25 are about, uh, sometimes we think, well, that's out there, that's abstract, it doesn't have any bearing on my life. But Jesus, Jesus wanted his disciples to teach what is in this discourse, along with the other discourses, to the disciples, such that we, their descendants today, descendants by faith, we need to hear these things as well. We need to be taught these things as well. And why? What we've been saying as we walk through the discourse is we need to understand how history is going to unfold. That's what Jesus is doing for his audience. That's what Matthew is doing as he's relaying it to his Jewish Christian audience. He's laying out future so that we can persevere and be faithful now, today. Eschatology, the stuff with regard to the end times, is intensely practical, not because you're to go and start making charts and setting dates. You're not supposed to do that, but so that you might be a good steward now with the time that remains and persevere even through great affliction. Let's review just briefly because we under, you understand how this, how this discourse flows, how this teaching section by Jesus flows you need to understand that flow to understand any one given part in it. So let's just briefly review. In 24, verse 3, the disciples ask a question. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And what we said is, is that they are thinking, yes, of the destruction of the temple that Jesus has just talked about in 24, 2. But Jesus has also talked about the desolation of the temple in 23, verse 38. He's also talked about his coming in 23, verse 39. So really, the disciples are thinking of this as a one big question. When's the destruction of the temple going to happen? When's the Son of Man coming? When's the close of the age? Because when the Messiah reigns over the whole earth, then it is the end of the present evil age and on to the age to come, the age that's going to go into eternity. And in answer to that question, Jesus, in four through, verses 4 through 14, he basically gives the basic outline. He basically gives the basic outline from the time of the disciples that are right in front of him to the end, to the end of the age. And he doesn't give a whole lot of specifics. He says, you're going to hear about wars, rumors of wars. You're going to hear famines and earthquakes. Don't be freaked out. Don't be shaken in your faith. That's got to happen, but the end's not yet. But the gospel of the king, and, and there's going to be persecution, and there's going to be defection. There's going to be apostasy. But the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to all nations, then the end will come. And his key point of application in that, that, that broad outline was in verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Full and final salvation as God has designed it is in the new heavens and the new earth where Christ reigns. And what one must do to reach it is to endure. Not by one's own strength, but through faith, through trust in Jesus, looking to Jesus, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit and one's heart to make it to the end. And so then what we did last week, starting in verse 15, and we only got through 15 through 22 last week, uh, but what is happening is Jesus is zooming in kind of on the last part of that outline. He's zooming in on the last part of that outline, and he talks about how do you persevere when you see the abomination of desolation, which we said uh, an, uh, there's been multiple abominations of desolations. It's an abomination is an idolatrous worship set up in the temple, uh, and it brings God's punishment, God's wrath, desolation to the temple, desolation to the land. That's happened multiple times in history, but there's a final time yet to come right before the turn of the age when that will happen again. And it will be a time of great distress or great tribulation. 
There's going to, you need to, it's going to be so bad that if you're in Judea, you just need to get out. You just need to go. And it's so bad that if God just let it run its course, everyone, there would be no human being, no flesh saved at all. And so what Jesus is doing, he's focusing on the end of that timeline, but he's instructing his disciples, here's what you do as you're waiting. Here's what you do as you look ahead to this is what's going to happen. You're going to have to go through this great distress. Uh, You need to persevere. How are you going to persevere? Well, last week he talked about fleeing, running away when it's appropriate. And then he's going to give us more this week as we look at verses 23 through 28. But then we're also going to look at what Jesus is, uh, we're going to look at the end itself. And then we're going to look at this whole question about timing and signs, 32 through 35. And all three of the sections that we're going to hit today are all tied together by what you do with the great distress, the great tribulation. It's all tied in with that. And so as we go forward this morning, here's the big idea. Again, with the idea of perseverance, persevere to the end by knowing what to expect with the great distress. Persevere to the end by knowing what to expect with the great distress. We obviously started talking about the great distress last week, but there's more to it in what we see this morning. So what we see first in verses 23 through 28 is another way that you need to persevere, that the disciples need to persevere in and through this great distress. Look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. Then, and the idea here with this then is at that time, at the time of the great distress. So he's still thinking about that time frame where you're, if you're in Judea, you got to go because this destruction's about to happen. Great distress is about to happen. So at that same time, if you hear, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, Do not believe it. Do not believe it. Now, Jesus has already touched on this theme earlier in 24, 4 through 14. He talked about this idea that many are going to come in my name and say, I am he. Because that's part of this whole discussion that Jesus has, uh, that the disciples have brought up. When's your coming? Well, there's going to be a lot of false comings and false Christs. And so we've talked about this idea before, but Jesus says, uh, you got to watch out for it in particular near the great distress. There's going to be many that say, here he is, there he is. And Jesus says, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Why not? Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, remember what Jesus said last week, the days of the great distress will be cut short so that the elect can be saved. Otherwise, they wouldn't. And what Jesus is saying here is there's going to be people, false, not only false prophets, but false Christ. They're going to rise up. They're going to have a message. That's what a prophet is, as someone who's purporting to speak on behalf of God. And they're going to say, here's the Christ. Here he is. Look, go see him. Remember the idea of the Christ is the one who is the rightful ruler, not only of Israel, but also of the whole world. And so together with these false messiahs, these false sons of David, there's going to be prophets, those who say, look, he's here. This is the real guy. And they're even going to have signs. Do you see that? They're, They're going to perform great signs and wonders. Now, even in the Old Testament, talking about prophets, back in Deuteronomy, God gives criteria for prophets, and God acknowledges that there can be prophets, so-called, that rise up, that do great wonders, that do miracles. And part of that, in a legitimate prophet, is designed to get people's attention to say, here is God's word, let me authenticate that, let me do miracles, or some great sign. So God does do that with legitimate prophets. But what's amazing is, is that false prophets can also do the same thing. False prophets can do some sort of miraculous work, some sort of amazing sign happening. But that's not the final criteria is some sort of sign or amazing work. The final sign and criteria is orthodoxy. Does it align with what the scriptures actually say? Or in this case, 
Does the person you're proclaiming to be the Christ actually align with the true Christ? And Jesus says, you're going to hear this stuff and just don't believe it. Just stop. He says, don't even go there. You're going to hear this stuff. And when you hear it, you know, it's false. You know, it's false. They're going to try to mislead the elect. They will not be successful if they're God's chosen people, but they're going to try. And Jesus says, verse 25, see, I've told you beforehand. I've told you beforehand. I told you what to do about it. So don't go after these guys. Verse 26, he continues on this theme. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say to you, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. The idea is, is, oh, you, it's kind of like this. Uh, it's someone approaching, maybe you as a professing Christian saying, oh, hey, you're a Christian, right? Well, did you hear? Jesus has actually come. He's actually out there in the wilderness. You need to go out in the wilderness and you need to see this guy because he's the real deal. Or on the other side, you know, uh, the Christ has come, but he's only, you know, he's only uh, revealing himself to a select few. You need to go into the inner rooms, the secret place. It was, it was all secret. So you need to go and see the Christ. And Jesus said, don't go out. Don't go there. Which is the application of not believing. You don't believe something, you don't act on it. And so Jesus is saying, don't believe these guys and don't act on it. Don't, don't be swayed. Don't even have a hint of that. Now, if you think through history, we've talked about this before, through history, even up to the, uh, the coming day, there have been many false Christs or people who are saying, the Christ has come and you missed it. You got to go see this guy and listen to us. He's come. And Jesus says, don't listen. Don't even give it, don't even give it a hearing. Why not? Why would Jesus say that? Why would he say, you know, you're going to hear prophets, you're going to hear these false signs, they're trying to deceive you. Don't even go there at all. Like, don't even give it a hearing. Well, he explains why in verses 27 through 28. For, so Jesus is going to support what he just said about not going out, not believing these messengers. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The idea is, and Jesus has already talked about his coming before in Matthew, like say the end of Matthew 16. He talks about how he's going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Like it's going to be a light show, okay? This is going to be a big deal, which is what Jesus is saying here. It's going to be, it's going to be like lightning across the sky. You guys have all probably sat through a great old, a big old thunderstorm. Maybe, maybe somewhere in the Midwest, you get a really, really good thunderstorm. And it just lights up the sky. It, it's unmistakable. That's real lightning. It's unmistakable. You can see it from where you are. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, Look, when I come, when I come, it's going to be unmistakable. In other words, there's going to be none of this secret business. Like, hey, you missed the coming of the Son of Man. You better go out to the wilderness or you better go into the inner rooms. You better follow me because I know the truth. I know the truth about the Messiah. Jesus is saying, don't even listen to them because when I come, you're going to know it. You're going to know it. It's going to be unmistakable. So you can discount anyone that comes up to you and says, oh, you missed the coming of the Son of Man. You missed Jesus in his second coming. Uh, you better follow me out to the wilderness. You better follow me into the inner rooms. You better have the secret knowledge. You better have whatever. You can just discount it out of hand because you know, uh, I, I, I can't have missed it because Jesus says it's going to be unmistakable. Unmistakable, like lightning going across the sky. And to reinforce this, Jesus uses a very strange imagery in verses 28, but he's talking about the same theme. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Actually, the word there for vultures is normally translated eagles. Wherever the corpse is, there the eagles will gather. Regardless, the picture is evident. Uh, you understand uh, be, that when there's dead things, something has died, there's a corpse, uh, birds of carrion, whether it's a vulture or something else, they're going to they're going to go ahead and make a meal of the dead corpse. But you know what's interesting about, and I think what Jesus is bringing into this imagery, you know, um, birds, carrion birds, they know how to tell when there's a false corpse and a true corpse, right? So if someone's just laying out there pretending to be dead, 
right? They've got a sense of smell. They've got a way of knowing. That's just false. That's not real. That's, a, that's, a, that's someone playing dead. But when there's a real corpse around, the birds come down, swoop down on the carrion. Now, what is Jesus saying with this? He's effectively saying that when the real deal happens, just like a real corpse, there's going to be this gathering. Now, the word for gathering there, Jesus has used in the context, and he will use it again. Go back to 2337. We've seen some birds, or this imagery of a bird trying to gather before, actually, in the context. Look at 2337. As Jesus is ending his woes, leaving out from the temple, listen to what he says in 2337. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers or an eagle gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. And there, when we went through that passage, we argued, this is the idea of God gathering his people, gathering the remnant, the righteous remnant of Israel, the repentant remnant of Israel, but then his people by and large. Same thing happens uh, a couple verses later in verse 31. Notice this. When Jesus comes, he's going to do this. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and he will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus is going to gather his people. He's going to gather his people together when he comes again. There's going to be this great glory display. Lightning flash is going to be unmistakable. And he's going to gather his people. Not only is he going to gather his people, he's going to gather those who are destined for judgment. Look at 2543, which we will see in a couple weeks. I'm sorry, 2532, 2532. Notice this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So the idea is when Jesus comes again, and you can see this elsewhere in Matthew, Matthew 13, uh, Jesus talks about coming again. He's saying when the Son of Man comes, he's going to gather out of his kingdom all sources of wickedness and lawlessness. So there's a double gathering happening. There's going to be a gathering of everyone to wherever the Son of Man is because the Son of Man is going to sit as judge and he's going to judge uh, in favor of the righteous, those who have repented and trusted him in, in faith. Um, and he's going to judge those who are pretenders. And so that imagery comes to bear in verse 28 when he's saying, hey, um, wherever the corpse is, wherever there's a real corpse, he's correlating that with a real coming, his true and genuine coming that is unmistakable, like the unmistakable smell of a dead corpse. There, the vultures, there, the birds, there, the eagles will gather. And what he's talking about is when the coming is real, everyone's just going to be gathered there anyway. It's going to be unmistakable. It's going to be unmistakable. What's the application? Well, the application here is, how do you persevere? You persevere by fleeing false prophets and false Christs. Don't be deceived by false messengers. We've already said false prophets can do signs and wonders. They're going to look really convincing. But you can dismiss them out of hand because uh, Jesus says, yeah, these people are going to come in. And if you think they're saying, oh, you missed it. No, you can't miss it. This is an event you cannot miss. Don't be led astray, even if you see false prophets or false Christ doing great signs and wonders. We talked about this before when Jesus had brought up this theme in 24, 4 through 14 of don't be led astray by false prophets and false Christ. He said, how do you, how do you avoid being swayed by a imitation? Well, you got to know the real thing. As Jesus is saying, you need to persevere by fleeing these false prophets and false Christ. Well, you're going to be able to identify these false prophets and false Christ by knowing the real deal, by knowing the true Christ. And I don't just mean knowing facts about the true Christ. The gospel 
Jesus himself says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's not just knowing like knowing facts about someone. It includes that. But it is knowing relationally, intimately, the true God and the true Christ. So if you don't want to be swayed by false messengers and false Christs, you got to know the true Christ. That is the gospel. The gospel is not just God is going to judge you and send you to the hell, so you better repent so you escape his judgment. That's half of the true gospel. But what God wants is not just to bring you out of hell and eternal damnation and his wrath and fury executed upon you, which is impending. He wants to bring you into friendship and and, and to experience and enjoy the fellowship that the Trinity has experienced for all eternity. And so to not be swayed by false prophets and false Christ, you got to know the true one. To be intimately related to him, to pursue him. That's why we do what we do when we have things like the means of grace. Why do we have things like Sunday morning service? Or why do we talk about doing a quiet time daily? Or why do we talk about praying daily? It's not so that you can check a box. You can check a box all you want, and it's not going to matter a whit to God. What the goal of all of that is, what the goal of the gathering is, is to know Christ, to know the real deal, to know the true Christ, to love, to delight, to worship the true Christ. If you have no delight, if you have no love, if you have no desire to know Christ, you do not know Christ. You can know a lot about him. There are a lot of good theologians and academicians and whatever else that know a lot of facts, more than I do, more than any of us in this room probably know, about Christ. And yet they don't know Christ. And the reality is, if you don't know Christ in an intimate way, then you're going to be sucked in and swept away by false prophets and false Christs when they come. Now, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, don't worry about missing the coming of the true Christ. Don't worry about it. Because it's going to be unmistakable. As long as you are in Christ, as long as you know the true Christ, You don't have to worry about missing it because Jesus says it's going to be unmistakable. So what do you do? Be faithful, persevere, don't be swayed, don't don't go to false messengers. You'll be gathered to the right spot when the time comes. Don't worry about it. That's part of persevering. So we've seen first, as part of this perseverance uh, to the end idea that Jesus has brought up, flee false prophets and false Christs around the great distress. And then next, as we move forward into 29 through 31, Jesus describes, he finally describes, here's what the coming's going to look like. He gives us more of a description. But it's right around the time of the great distress. Look at verses 29 through 31, and we see this. The Son of Man will gather his chosen immediately after the great distress. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation, the distress... Of those days. Well, what tribulation, what distress is he talking about? He's talking about the great distress that has been connected with the the abomination of desolation being set up in the temple. So all of this is tightly connected chronologically. Notice the word immediately. Can't get around that one. Immediately after the stuff that happens in verses 15 through 28 is the is what's going to happen in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, actually, this imagery of stars falling and not giving light, etc., is Old Testament imagery. Uh, I'll give you a sample. Uh, Go to Isaiah 13. Go to Isaiah 13. And I'm going to read a, a, a little bit of context to give you some, some sense of what is being talked about. So I'll start in verse 1 of Isaiah 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So Isaiah understands uh, that Babylon is an enemy and it's eventually going to uh, take his people into exile. It's about 100 years before that happens. But you understand that's going to happen. So Babylon is like the, the typological, the, the quintessential enemy 
of God's people. Now notice this. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and I have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a great a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms. The nations gathering together, Yahweh of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heaven, Yahweh and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. And what Isaiah is alluding to is Babylon's going to be destroyed because of its enemy against, being an enemy against God's people and an enemy against God, ultimately. Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place, as the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Now what God is doing there is he's saying, Babylon, you're an enemy against my people. I'm going to deal with you. And God did deal with Babylon ultimately, but he's also using language here that's pointing forward to the ultimate day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord, and we've talked about this before as we've gone through Matthew, the day of the Lord is when God himself comes from heaven to earth to save his people and to judge the wicked to save his people and to execute wrath against his enemies. And friends, just to make a note here, we all start out as his enemies. God hates his enemies because they are evildoers. They stand against him and he will come against them in wrath, except for those who are his people who have repented and placed their faith in him. He will save them. But what we can see back in Matthew 24 is the same language. The, 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 the stars coming down, the, the heavens being darkened, the towers being shaken. Is that real? Yeah, I think so. Because this is the ultimate day that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the Son of Man coming. This is the ultimate day when God comes to earth. And everything in the cosmos is going to be reshaped and renewed. Which is why we talk about a new heavens and a new earth. So he's saying this is going to happen immediately after the great tribulation. But what's the result? Look at verse 30. Then will appear in heaven, that is the sky, the sign of the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is coming. What's the sign? Well, Jesus has already just said that when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be like lightning from one end of the heavens to the other. And we've already said that, or Matthew's already said, Jesus already said in Matthew that when he comes, he's going to come in the glory of the Father and the angels. So I don't know what the sign is, but it sounds like it's going to be something in the sky that unmistakably is tied to the Son of Man. He's signaling. It's like a banner at the head of a marching army. He's signaling, I'm coming. And I'm coming to invade and I'm coming to take over what is rightfully mine. And then notice what happens after that sign. And then all the tribes of the land will mourn. Now, your translation probably reads earth, and that gives you the sense that everywhere. But actually, what's interesting here is that Jesus is alluding to an Old Testament passage. Remember what I said last week. If you want to understand the coming of Jesus, you've got to understand the Old Testament. And this particular phrase, all the tribes of the ground or the land is a allusion to a verse in Zechariah. Go to Zechariah 12. Now, Jesus has used Zechariah before. He has used it in connection with his coming on the donkey. You remember, he marches into Jerusalem on two donkeys. He's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Well, more, we get more information in Zechariah, and in Zechariah 12, in the first, we're not going to read it, but the first nine verses of Zechariah 12, it talks about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. 
They're under duress. They are being threatened. But then it talks about how Israel and Jerusalem are going to defeat like the enemies around them. Uh, Like they're going to be like fire to their enemies. Their enemies are just going to be destroyed. And the question is, and Zechariah is like, well, how is that possible? Because Israel has been, um, has been evil. Uh, how is it possible that God's going to rescue his people that have been evil? And really, what we see in verses 10 through chapter 13, verse 1 in Zechariah explains it. And we see our phrase that Jesus is alluding to in Matthew 24. Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each on itself, and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Did you see the phrase there of mourning? Mournings of the tribes, which is exactly the word that Jesus is using in Matthew 24. He's talking about the tribes of Israel. And did you notice the mourning that's happening in Zechariah 12? What kind of mourning is it? It's not a mourning over sudden destruction. It's a mourning of repentance. It's a mourning of lament, of losing an only child. Yes, it's bitter, it's sad, but it's a mourning over what? Over the one whom they have pierced. So what is Jesus talking about back in Matthew 24? He's saying, all this cataclysm is going to happen. Then there's going to be the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the land, the 12 tribes, will mourn, mourn in repentance, mourn in repentance over crucifying the Messiah There's going to be repentance. And Jesus has already talked about this, right? They're going to mourn in repentance. And then what happens next? They will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jerusalem, who has rejected him in Jesus' day, is going to mourn, according to Zechariah 12. And then what's going to happen? They're going to see the son of man. Well, that's exactly what Jesus said in 2339. Remember 2338, he said this, See to your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus saying, yeah, you're going to see me again. We see the morning of repentance happening for Israel, and then they're going to see the Son of Man coming, just like Daniel 7 said. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's a quote, an allusion from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. With all those evil kingdoms, all those evil empires of the world that we talked about last week, what's Jesus going to do? He's going to come back. The Ancient of Days, naming the Father, is going to be on earth. And he's going to set up thrones for judgment. And the Son of Man is going to come to the Ancient of Days on earth. And he's going to hand over the kingdom and judgment to the Son of Man and to his people. That's what Daniel 7 talks about. Jesus is going to win, and he's going to defeat every evil empire on this earth. He's going to establish a kingdom of perfect justice, righteousness, plenty, but only for those who are his people. It's rescue not only for Israel, but for all the nations of the world. And notice what he's going to do when he's coming back. As he's marching in, verse 31 He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and he will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 30, verse 4. You don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 30 is a very important chapter in the Old Testament. Because basically Deuteronomy 30 is saying to Israel, hey, you're going to disobey, and you're going to go after idols, and I'm going to curse you, and I'm going to scatter you to the winds of the heaven. But then Deuteronomy 30 comes in right after that and says, after that happens... You're going to repent with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the Lord's going to bring you back. He's going to, and it uses this phrase, draw you in from the four winds of heaven for restoration. And what's going on here is not only the restoration of Israel, but it's the whole elect of God, the chosen people of God who are from 
all the nations of the earth. That gathering, like the, the vultures on a corpse, the gathering of people coming as the Son of Man comes back. Same energy happens. I already mentioned this in Matthew 13 in his parables, the, the parable of the tares. He says at the end, the harvest is the end of the age and the Son of Man is going to send forth his angels to gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all causes of lawlessness, all evildoers. And then the righteous will shine like stars in the heavens. That's what he's talking about here. It's the final establishment of the kingdom on earth, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been proclaiming that has been rejected by this generation of Israel, but will be accepted by a future generation. This is what the coming looks like. Now, did you notice he's just describing, he's not calling his disciples to anything at this point. He's just saying, this is what's going to happen. And it's going to happen immediately after the tribulation of those days. You got to remember Matthew's audience. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Jews, Jewish Christians. And he's saying, um, you know, his Jewish audience probably by this point, Matthew is like, wait a minute, the temple's going to be destroyed? And uh, the Messiah is going away when he was already there? What's going to happen? And Jesus is saying, oh, don't worry. He's coming back. I'm coming back. Why? Because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And that's true for us. It's, it's going to help the Jewish audience hold on. It's going to help us who are primarily Gentile hold on. How are we going to hold on when it's been 2,000 plus years, or 2,000-ish years, I should say, and, to, um, and Jesus still hasn't come back? We hold on to this, that God keeps his promises. You know, it's interesting. I was reading Luke 1 a while back, and I just caught up this idea that when you hear like Mary and Zechariah with like the birth of John the Baptist or the birth of Jesus coming on, they're talking about the Abrahamic covenant. Well, you got to understand that's 2,000 years in the past for them. And they're still looking forward to the promise being fulfilled, and it is. And that gave me great encouragement. It should give us great encouragement because God always keeps his promises. Yeah, it's been about 2,000 plus years. That's about the same time it was from Jesus' day to Abraham's day and now from Jesus' day to our day. God keeps his promises. Jesus will come to crush the evil human empires of the world and rule over the perfect kingdom on earth as the perfect king. The current world system, the current cosmic system. It's amazing seeing all these, the things we can see through Hubble telescope and now the James Webb telescope. Amazing things in the heavens, but it's not that permanent. The current cosmic system is going to be completely reshaped and renewed. So what does that mean? Don't cling to it. Don't cling to it. The things that seem to be the most permanent aren't. The question is, when Jesus comes, are you, have you, or will you mourn over Jesus like the mourning over an only son? The mourning of lament, the mourning of repentance. Not the mourning of disaster. Oh yes, there will be people freaking out because uh, the, son, uh, the, the lamb has come and how can we hide from his wrath? That's what Revelation talks about. There's that kind of mourning. But the mourning that Jesus alludes to here and that Zechariah talks about is the mourning of repentance, of lament. And that's where we all need to start because we are all God's enemies. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his wrath to be unleashed in eternal fires of hell for all eternity because God is good and we are rotten and miserable sinners. We are rebels against him. We've slapped him in the face again and again. Each day of our lives, we deserve wrath. But, but, the escape is to realize that because of our sin, we are guilty of the death of the Son of God. The reason Jesus went to the cross is for the sins of nations and peoples and individuals numbered and written down, and they were nailed to the cross with Christ. And so we are, those whom Christ died for, we are responsible for his death. That is very clear in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's not just the Jews who put Jesus to death. It is uh, the, the Romans, and by extension, all the nations of the world. All the nations of the world, every single individual is guilty of the death of the Son of Man on the cross. 
But just like Israel, how do you escape the father's wrath? How do you escape the wrath of the son when he comes again? It is by mourning first. Mourning that I am guilty. I have pierced the son to the cross and I am guilty of the wrath of God. And I mourn over that. But instead of running from the one whose wrath I am trying to escape, you run to him. You run to him because he is a good king who has died in place of his people. And he has died in place of their sins so that wrath could be averted. He has lived the righteous human life that no one else could live. To be counted to any who would come in repentance and faith and mourning. Friends, that's the gospel. So have you mourned like that? Not because you need to muster up like, I, I, don't feel, I don't feel guilty enough and therefore I can't come. No, that's not the idea. The idea is, yes, I recognize I am guilty and I know I don't mourn over my sin as I ought, but I see that I am guilty and I come bowing the knee to Christ and knowing that he is the only one who can rescue me from his own wrath when he comes again. Do you mourn over Jesus like that, like an only son? And the ones who mourn like that, what is, there is blessing, there is hope, there is salvation. So we've seen first that you need to flee false prophets and false Christs around the great distress. In verses 29 through 31, we just saw that the Son of Man will gather his chosen immediately after the great distress. And then finally we see this in verses 32 to 35. No that the Son of Man is near when you see the great distress. Know that the Son of Man is near when you see the great distress. Look at verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts on out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also you, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, what Jesus is doing here, he's coming to the end of his first, the, his first answer to the disciples' question. Remember, they asked, they asked really one question with two parts. Part of their question was, when's the timing? And part of the other question was, when's, what, what are the signs? And we've been seeing that Jesus answers those in reverse order. Everything he's been talking about is sign-oriented. He hasn't talked about, like, timing so much. He's just saying, when you see these things, this is going to happen. Be on the lookout for this. And there's a switch in verse 36. From verse 36 on, he's going to answer the other part of the disciples' question. He's going to answer the timing question. In fact, he's going to start with, no one knows the day or the hour. But that's all about timing. So what he is doing is he is drawing his answer to the first question to a close about signs, signs of destruction in Jerusalem, the temple, signs of the coming of the Son of Man, all of that. And so what is he telling? He's, he's not narrating anymore. He's not giving us any more details about the outline of how, the events, but he's saying, what do, you, what do you take away from all of this? Well, let's use an illustration from the fig tree. As soon as you see its branch become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And that's true. In that area in Palestine, uh, you see the fig tree becoming, t the, the, the branch becoming tender, putting out new wood, uh, leaves coming out. It's near. The time is near. You know that summer is coming when you see that. It's a sign for summer. And Jesus draws an analogy, a comparison, verse 33. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very greats. Now, what are the, all these things? What are you supposed to see? I don't think he's saying when you see the Son of Man coming, as in 29 through 31, then you know he's near. It doesn't make any sense because he's already there. Like if he's there, you don't, he's not near, he's there. So what are these, what is the, all these things he's talking about? Verses 15 through 28. Notice the same phrase that started in verse 15. So when you see, and then he talks about a bunch of stuff you're going to see. And then, yes, he talks about immediately after that, there's the coming of the Son of Man. They ask for a sign, and he uses that language. So also, when you see all these things, all the events of 15 through 28, excluding the coming of the Son of Man, you know he's near. 
all that great distress coming upon you know he's right there at the gates, ready to come, ready to invade. He's answered their question. He's given them actually multiple signs to keep an eye out for. But then he keeps going as he ties up his answer to their first question. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, we've got another all these things. What does it refer to? I think in this case, since he's drawing his discourse to a close, he's talking about everything that he talked about from four all the way through 31. Everything happening. So when you see these things, he's near. But this generation's not going to pass away until all this stuff that we've been talking about from verses 4 through 31 takes place. Now, you've got two options for this generation. Option one, this generation refers to Jesus' contemporaries. If that's the case, you should all go home right now. Because that didn't happen, right? Jesus is effectively saying everything that I've just talked about needs to happen uh, before this generation, whatever this generation is, passes away. Well, that generation passed away and not all, Jesus' contemporary generation passed away and not all those things happened. So either Jesus is a false prophet or, and we should all just go home, or he's referring to something else. And I think what he's referring to is option two, the generation that sees all the stuff of the great distress. This generation, the generation I was just telling you about, when you see all these things, you know that he's near the very gates. This generation, that generation I was just talking about, that generation won't pass away until all those things take place. So what is he saying? He's not talking about time. He's talking about when that generation comes and sees all these great things or these amazing and horrific things happening, it's going to go quick. It's going to go quick. The generation isn't going to pass away until everything happens, including the coming of the Son of Man, the turn of the age, all of it. And you notice how Jesus stakes his word, stakes everything on what he's just said. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, which he kind of said they did, right? That's going to happen. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. But what does he say? My words will not pass away. Jesus' words, the words of God are more stable than the created order than Mount Adams or Mount Hood, than the Columbia River, than the North or South Pole, than the continents, than the, the core of the earth, than the distant scars and galaxies. More than all of that, Jesus' words are firm and trustworthy and true. He staked everything on it. He staked everything on it. And he's saying, be aware no, look for the seasons when it comes. And then when it comes, it's going to come quickly. So what do we do with this? Again, 2,000-ish years removed. Well, it would be this. Be aware of the signs of the coming great affliction. Be aware of them without becoming obsessed with them. There's a wrong sort of awareness where it becomes obsession and just like kind of an odd like focus on like, Maybe this person's the Antichrist, or maybe this army moving in here is fulfilling this, and don't do that. Don't do that. Be aware. Jesus has given you what to look for, and it's not all that detailed, to be completely honest. But he says, it's just like knowing a fig tree when it's going to fruit and go into season. You'll, you'll know. The signs are there to get you to recognize that Christ is near. And, and that's the thing is, why is that good news? Because there's going to be a generation going through this hor horrific affliction that's going to be really just terrible, great pain, dislocation, suffering. And it's Jesus' disciples going through this. And if they're seeing this horrific, great distress happening, to hear Jesus' words that, don't worry, I'm near. I'm coming soon. And in fact, the generation that you're in, if you're going to undergo that stress, won't pass away until I come. That's good news, to know that Jesus is coming. But even for those of us here, we haven't seen the signs of great distress yet. We keep our eye out, but we're trying to be faithful now. But we should be clinging to Christ just as closely. You know, we talked about last week how there are many trials and Afflictions that we go through in a fallen world, as you are going through those afflictions, are you clinging to Christ? 
to make it through. That one day, Jesus will establish the perfect kingdom. No pain, no suffering, perfect justice, perfect prosperity and blessing. Are you clinging to that? Do you long for his return? Do you love his appearing? That's what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 4. Or is it like, yeah, take it or leave it. Then you don't know Christ, friend. Because we long, if we know Christ, not just know about him, but we know him, we long to see him again. And you have to hold on because Jesus has staked his reputation on what he has taught. Cling to what Christ has said. His words are more certain than the durability of the created universe. Do you trust more in what Jesus has said or in what you say? Or what this person says or that person says or this person in authority or power says? Whose words are you trusting? Are you trusting your own, your own internal voice, the voices of others in our culture? Or are you trusting Jesus' words? Jesus died and rose from again and has ascended on high, and he's coming again. You can bank on his words with everything. Now, don't think, as we, we kind, of, kind of talked about this, don't think that you're not going to see these days. That's the worst thing you could do, kind of leaving from here. It's like, ah, I'm, that's, that's in the future yet. I don't have to worry about it. Well, Jesus is going to address that very topic in coming weeks, and he's saying, don't think that way. Because wrath is going to come upon you suddenly and swiftly. What do we do? We do the very thing that we've been talking about the last few weeks. We prepare and persevere to the end by faith in Jesus Christ. Persevere to the end by knowing what to expect with a great distress. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for you to come again. We know that the events leading up to it will be horrific. And it will be a time of great pain, great suffering for your people. But even so, you have promised to preserve your people through it. To protect them, to keep them in faith. Father, we're not going, undergoing great distress now, but there are many distresses in life that we do have to go to and they tempt our faith. They try our faith. And when trials come, Lord, help us to humble ourselves, trust your words, trust your goodness, trust your care that you would keep us to the end. We pray for durable faith for all of us here at Faith Bible Church, that we would not crumple under hardship, that we would not be lazy and apathetic, but that we would be vigorously looking ahead, plowing, working, because we love you and longing to see you again. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity even now as we transition to partaking in your supper. The supper is supposed to be a reminder of the coming kingdom. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to take it worthily this morning as a church and as individuals, that we would look back at the cross, the what is your blood shed, your body broken to purchase a people for yourself? Lord, that we would look around us to see the, the people that you have rescued, who are proclaiming their rescue through partaking, and Lord, to look ahead to the future to the kingdom you have promised. Help us now to partake in a worthy manner, we would ask in Christ's name. Amen.